Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to finish up that long list of character qualities of an elder this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and let me reread that passage for us, and we'll kind of pick up where we left off last week in our message. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, not ge- or excuse me, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Father, we're grateful for the sweet time of communion and fellowship with Christ we've been able to already have by singing uh, these precious lyrics uh, straight from your word. Thank you for the, the opportunity that music gives us, provides us to express our heart, what is in our heart towards you. And now as we come before your word, I pray that we would offer you the same worship and reverence as we attentively listen to what you have written here by your spirit through Paul to Timothy about elders and pastors. And uh, this is so vital for us to understand as a church. And so would you grant us grace now and would your spirit work amongst us and teach us what you would have us to know so we could be who you want us to be. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, Lakeside was started back in the fall of 1999 with an initial leadership team consisting of three elders. And two years later, we added another elder to that original group. And that really provided me the first opportunity that I ever had to teach on church leadership. And so I wanted to be as thorough as possible. Go figure, right? So I walked our people at the time through uh, every New Testament passage that mentions the office of elder, and then I summarized those passages in a list of 25 principles regarding elders. And I thought it might be helpful for me to read that list to you, so long as you don't try to write them down, okay? This won't be helpful if you think you gotta write all these down, okay? Don't write them down and give me your permission just to sit back and listen to these principles and just take them in, uh, and it's just really kind of the overarching perspective of what God ordained an elder or pastor, as we know they're interchangeable terms, um, to do and be. Elders are, number one, submitted to the headship of Jesus Christ, and by the way, I had all these verses uh, tacked onto all these statements, so I wasn't just pulling them out of the air. Um, but I was rooting them and grounding them in the word. So elders are, number one, submitted to the headship of Jesus Christ. Number two, they are delegated Christ's authority by the Holy Spirit through God's word. They are called to serve by the sovereign choice of God. They are motivated by a pure, intense, all-consuming desire for the work. They are qualified to be an example to others in the church by being above reproach. They are limited to men, 
They are recognized and examined by the congregation. They are tested over time. They are appointed by the established group of elders. They are installed by the laying on of hands. They are entrusted with the responsibility to shepherds God's flock. They are assisted by a group of qualified deacons or deaconesses. Uh, 13, they are committed to the ministry of the word in prayer. 14, they guard against the possibility of falling away from the truth. 15, they are alerted to the inevitability of false teachers. 16, they are skilled with the word and able to teach truth and refute error. They are complemented or balanced out by a plurality of men. They are clothed with an attitude of humility towards those whom they serve and those with whom they serve. They are resolved to unanimously agree on everything. They are required to work hard. They are loved, honored, and respected by the entire congregation. They are disciplined more severely than the rest of the members of the church. They are followed and obeyed by those under their watchful care. They are required to give an account someday for their ministry. And then lastly, 25, they are rewarded greatly at the return of Christ. And so it took me several weeks to get through that list, obviously, looking at all the passages that, from where those principles are drawn. But if you want to just get right down to it, the most critical passage or passages about elders in the New Testament are 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and of course, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Both of these passages outline the biblical criteria for those who are qualified to serve as elders or pastors in a local church. Here, Timothy was serving in the church at Ephesus. In the book of Titus, Titus was overseeing the church plants on the island of Crete. And one of their primary responsibilities or most urgent task was establishing a godly leadership team in all of those churches. And so Paul provided them with a, a checklist, if you will, a, a checklist for choosing church leaders. And every local church must insist that anyone who serves as a pastor or elder over them meets this list of objective observable qualifications. And really, the, the ultimate test of whether or not a man is called to serve as a pastor, as an elder, is to examine his life to see if he matches up with this personal profile of a pastor or an elder that Paul painted here. You could also look at this as a, a, a snapshot of a shepherd, the, the profile of a pastor. If you want to know what a pastor looks like, you want to know what a, a shepherd looks like, uh, this is what he looks like here in 1 Timothy 3, chapter, verses 1 through 7. And again, Paul listed 15 features of an elder or a pastor. And we looked at the first uh, seven, I think, or maybe six. I lost track, but we'll get on track here. But uh, the first one is that he must be above reproach. And we said last week that this is the overarching, all-consuming qualification that summarizes the entire list of qualifications. And again, this word above reproach, we have to be careful that we don't say it means a guy has to be perfect because then you wouldn't have pastors. I wouldn't be your pastor because I'm not perfect, right? But that there's no obvious character flaw in that man's life that taints his reputation or could cause someone to think or talk badly about him. I think that's what it means to be above reproach. Um, and again, the qualifications that, that follow here now really just define and, and illustrate what it means to be above reproach. 
And so he says, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And we said how, uh, took some extra time last week talking about the various ways that this phrase has been interpreted throughout the centuries. Uh, Paul may have been thinking about, you know, a guy couldn't be single, he had to be married, or there was no polygamist to be uh, elders, or no divorced men, or no widowers, excuse me, who have been remarried. Again, I don't think that Paul was referring to a man's marital status so much, or as, as much as he was simply requiring that an elder be faithfully devoted to his present wife, and implying that his marriage can serve as a model for others in the church. I think that's the idea here. And in my opinion, that's the best way to interpret this phrase because it best harmonizes everything else the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So he's the husband of one wife. He's temperate, which literally means without wine. But I don't think Paul was thinking about wine when he penned that because he has a, another characteristic coming up in verse 3 that specifically says not addicted to wine. So what is this idea of temperate? I think it simply means that the life of an elder is marked by physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual sobriety and stability. Uh, he lives a well-balanced life and, is, and has mastery over all of his appetites. He's also prudent, which is a, a similar word to temperate. It just implies that the elder is self-controlled, he's sober-minded, he's, he's sensible, he's wise, he's discerning. Uh, it says he also must be respectable. Uh, he must lead an orderly, disciplined life. He shouldn't have a chaotic lifestyle filled with misplaced priorities or unorganized activities or unaccomplished tasks. He's hospitable, and which we know that word literally means lover of strangers. And so he kind of leads the charge in being gracious and, and, and generous toward everyone, especially the newcomers in the church. He goes out of his way to, to reach out to them and, and find them and, and minister to them. And so he just models what it looks like to, to sacrificially serve others with his stuff, with his life and his stuff. Uh, he just, he's just giving and generous. And number seven, he's able to teach, which should stick out to us because this is the only ability mentioned in this list. Everything else is, 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 has to do with the guy's character, but this has to do with his ability and it really highlights, I think, the primary task of an elder or pastor, which is to preach and teach God's word. And we said last week that this means that an elder must have a good working knowledge of the scriptures and be able to clearly and accurately explain it to others and help other people practically apply it to their lives. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul said to Timothy, be, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I think that's part of what it means to be able to teach. Uh, they must be astute theologians who can guard the church from heresy. Um, and by the way, heresy enters the church in a, in a number of ways. It could be through a, a, a preacher. Um, it could be through an author. But uh, elders need to have uh, discernment, biblical discernment, to be able to d discern when a speaker or author has deviated from the scriptures um, and then able to correct that. Uh, Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says that elders are to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict well, that's where we got to last week, and so we're going to pick up our list here in verse 3. 
And uh, starting with uh, the, the eighth qualification or the eighth, eighth feature of a pastor or elder, that he's not addicted to wine. In other words, an elder shouldn't have a drinking problem. Now, again, let me say right off the bat here, we all know this to be true. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to drink, but it does say it's a sin to get drunk. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, just a few chapters later here in verse 23, Paul encouraged Timothy to drink a little wine for medicinal purposes. Apparently, he had an upset stomach. Maybe that came with his nervousness or his timidity. I'm not sure. But uh, he encouraged him to drink a little wine to help uh, calm his stomach. But even so, you can go back to the book of Proverbs, for example, where we find some strong warnings about the wisdom uh, of drinking, or maybe better said, the foolishness of drinking. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. Whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Um, and then chapter 23, Proverbs 23, talks about, uh, describes the, the, um, the lifestyle, if you will, uh, of a drunkard. Um, verse 29, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, at last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper, your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like the one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I wake? I will seek another drink. Those of you that maybe God saved out of a lifestyle of alcoholism, uh, you understand those verses because you live those verses. Um, again, in the context of wisdom here. And then lastly, in Proverbs 31, we see the connection between drinking and leading. And here is uh, the words of King Lemuel, and this was what his mother taught him as a young man, verse four. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. In other words... Lemuel's mom said, hey, you know what? Drinking and leading don't mix very well. And I think that's so true because an elder serves in such a, a visible, influential role, right? That, again, this is my personal opinion here. I think they should hold themselves to a higher standard when it comes to alcohol, especially when you consider what the Bible says about alcohol. Now, granted, you got to think about this. Back when the Bible was written, alcohol was not just a preference, or excuse me, wine was not just a, a, the preferred drink. It was a necessity, right? Because the water was, you know, impure most of the time. And so uh, wine was really the, was, was sort of like the, here in Texas, the, the, the tea. You know, on, you sit down at a restaurant, so they ask you, you want water or tea or sweet tea, right? That's just kind of what you drank. And uh, that's the way it was in the Bible, but there was all these uh, verses in the Bible warning them of the dangers of drinking too much wine. And so, again, I think that um, we live in a society today where 
Alcohol has destroyed countless lives and countless families. It's a huge moral and spiritual problem. And while a pastor or elder may be able to handle a glass of wine or, or drinking a beer from time to time, someone might see them with a, a, a drink in their hand and feel justified in drinking, and they may not be able to handle it. And so as a shepherd, I personally choose to limit my freedom to drink so as not to be a stumbling block potentially to the sheep. And again, that's not a standard that we all hold ourselves to as elders here. Uh, I've never made a big deal about that with our, with our fellow elders, my fellow elders. I mean, I know there are some churches where uh, they kind of have to sign something when you become an elder that you're not going to drink. Um, we don't do that here at Lakeside. I trust the men that God has uh, blessed us with as leaders, that they are men who uh, are men of sobriety, they're men of uh, self-control, they're men of uh, discretion and balance, and so what they choose to do uh, when it comes to alcohol is between them and the Lord, because we know ultimately it's a Romans 14 issue, right? It's a, it's a, it's a personal conscience issue, as long as we keep um, in mind the potential that we all have to be a stumbling block for one another, and so we need to pull together all those principles as we determine what the Lord would have for us to do when it comes to these debatable, what I would call gray areas, um, uh, including uh, whether or not to drink. And so he says he must not be addicted to wine. He must not have a drinking problem. Um, And you may never have met a pastor with a drinking problem. I have. And so uh, it's it's possible um, to to, uh, have that be an issue in a man's life. Number nine is that he should not be pugnacious. Pugnacious, kind of a funny word that we don't hear often in our day and age, but it simply means that an elder should not, cannot be known as a fighter. He's not someone with a short temper or a short fuse who becomes belligerent and resorts to verbal or physical abuse. In other words, he's not easily irritated or provoked And this is important because elders oftentimes find themselves in tense, heated situations. And so they can't be the type of person who settles matters with their fists because there's some times that people want to throw down with an elder. Like they they would go physical with an elder if if the elder was ready, right, they would go for it. And so that's why an elder needs to be able to have the self-control to stand down, right, and not settle matters with their fists, but able to handle things with a cool mind and a gentle spirit, Number 10, they must be gentle. And this characteristic really stands out like a rose between two thorns. You've got uh, pugnacious, uh, not pugnacious, but gentle. And then the next word is peaceable or uncontentious. And so this is really the opposite of being pugnacious or contentious. So an elder is to be patient, considerate of others' feelings, um, gracious, forbearing, he must be able to put up, with, put up with and make allowances for people's slowness or awkwardness or maybe rudeness. Uh, sometimes sheep can get ornery and feisty and, uh, and out of frustration, it would be easy for an elder to abuse his authority and uh, become domineering and maybe be tempted to, to beat that sheep into submission, not literally, but maybe verbally. But an elder must gently, patiently lead 
the sheep without getting upset or being easily offended. There needs to be a sweet reasonableness uh, about an elder or a pastor. He must be quick to forgive and not carry around resentments. He must strive to overlook and forget even things uh, people have done or said to him and strive to just remember the good in them. I think that's all part of being gentle. And then number 11, he must be peaceable. And some of your Bibles may say uncontentious. In other words, an elder must not be quarrelsome. He must not be a troublemaker, but a peacemaker. He must not be an argumentative person who who always insists on his rights or or stubbornly demands that he gets his way all the time or or be that guy who always has to have the last word. You know that guy? They, They don't make good elders, okay? Because an elder needs to know how to humbly defer to others in areas of personal conviction or when it comes to matters of preference. In other words, he's peaceable, right? He strives for peace. Um, and, and you think about this, it would be impossible for a group of men who are serving together on an elder team to make unanimous decisions if all of them were so headstrong and, and none of them had the wisdom and maturity to defer to one another. You'd never get anything done. And so elders must be able to disagree without being disagreeable. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says this well. Paul said to Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. I think that describes really those three qualities there right in a row, those three characteristics, not pugnacious, um, gentle, and peaceable. But notice the 12th characteristic here, that he's free from the love of money. He's free from the love of money. So an elder must not be preoccupied with money or overly interested in amassing material possessions. Uh, And he definitely shouldn't be in the position of a pastor or elder for the money. Uh, Try to use his position or people for personal profit or gain. Again, this may not be as common in um, here in the States, but as I've traveled around the world and met up with other pastors uh, who are training up and, 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 and equipping other young men to be pastors in certain cultures, particularly third world cultures, that being a pastor is kind of the cushy life. And, and a lot of guys go into the ministry in those contexts because they want to have, they want to be wealthy, considerably, relatively speaking. And, uh, and that's the way to do it by being a, a pastor. But we see throughout the New Testament warnings against a desire for sordid gain. First Timothy chapter six, verse five. He says, be careful of those who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Titus 1, 7. He says he must not be addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And then 1 Peter 5.3, we looked at this uh, a while ago. 
1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. So what that means is a pastor, an elder, needs to be content with his financial situation and have faith in God's loving provision for him. Again, back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. I think Matthew 6.33 should be the mindset of every pastor, every elder. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you as well. And that was said by Christ in the context of the disciples worrying about what they were going to eat and what they were going to wear. And he said, hey, Seek me first, seek my kingdom, and just trust me, and I will provide. So free from the love of money, which, by the way, if we just went off that qualification alone, it would disqualify a whole lot of the preachers that we see, uh, especially on TV today, right? Where it's all about their love of, of money and their luxurious lifestyles, and they're really fleecing the sheep, if you will, for their own gain. And hey, send me this money and send me this and I'll send you this and I'll pray for you. And, and here they go living in these mansions and driving all these fancy cars and buying all these expensive jets and, and justifying it all in the name of Jesus. And I think they stand in stark contrast to Paul, who even though he was entitled to be supported financially, chose to make tents on the side to avoid being a burden to anyone and also to keep his motives from being called into question. You're there in the same neighborhood, 2 Thessalonians. Just turn back a page, perhaps, if you're there in 1 Timothy 3. Just turn back a page. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. In other words, we weren't freeloaders. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this. And later on in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, you remember uh, Timothy, Paul would tell Timothy, elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially to those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So it's, it's not wrong for a pastor to make a living by being a pastor, right? But in Paul's case, he decided to forego that. He said in verse 8, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. In other words, I don't want to put that burden on you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we are with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. And the reason why he was saying this, he says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. 
Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So Paul recognized that was an issue in the church of Thessalonica, and so he wanted to be an example of what that looks like. And so that's where we come up with the concept of, of oh, that guy's a tent maker, right? Or, or maybe a bivocational pastor where he, he serves as a pastor on Sundays, but he works a, a, a normal job, if you will, during the week uh, and, and provides for himself, right? And doesn't put that burden on the church. And God leads different men and different churches um, to that conclusion, uh, whether they're going to be a tent maker or they're going to be supported by the church. But the bottom line is that we should be free as elders and pastors from the love of money. We're not in it for, uh, to make a buck, if you will. And then we come to another um, qualification here that has lots of different ramifications and different ways to uh, understand, interpret, and apply. But it says here in verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, his own household, that's the idea, he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God or the household of God? Which, by the, word, by the way, just, um, just a few verses later, in verse 15, that's how Paul described the church, the household of God, the church of the living God. So, what is the point here? I think, generally speaking, an elder must have an exemplary home life where everything is under control. Um, their wife, their kids, their finances, you fill in the blank there. His wife must be respectful and submissive to his loving leadership. His children, while not perfect and problem-free, must obey and honor him. Uh, he must be actively involved in raising his children in the nurture and discipline of the Lord while guarding against the tendency to frustrate them or exasperate them or discourage them or provoke them to anger. And so by the grace of God, he walks that fine line be, 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 between being too harsh and being too lenient. Someone said raising kids is like holding a bar of soap, a wet bar of soap. You know how that is? You just kind of got to get that grip on it and just kind of hold it. If you, if you, if you hold it you know, too loosely, it'll slip out. If you hold it too hard, it'll shoot out, right? And, and so you just kind of got that, that grip that's not too harsh, not too lenient. And when problems or difficulties arise in his family, in his marriage, with his children, he must be able to provide the, the wise guidance and the responsible uh, care necessary to lead his family through those storms of life. And again, it's in, it's in a parenthetical statement in my Bible, verse 5, He's essentially saying if a man can't care for the needs of his own family members, then why would anyone think that he would be competent to care for the needs of the members of the church? How is he supposed to help other families and other marriages? How can he speak into other marriages if his marriage is a wreck? How can he shepherd other parents in shepherding their kids if he's not shepherding his own kids? So really, a man's household is the proving ground for whether or not he's qualified to lead the household of God. Now turn over to Titus chapter one for a second. This other list, the second list, 
because uh, while most of this is just uh, redundant and repetitive, um, in other words, it it's uses, Paul used almost the same exact list uh, for Titus that, that he did in, in, to Timothy, but he does provide a little bit more specific instruction here regarding uh, a, a, an elder's family. Notice verse 6. He said, uh, uh, he said in verse 5, appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely if a man, any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, here it is, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now that phrase, again, has caused some interpretive challenges for Bible scholars and pastors and preachers uh, throughout the years. Um, what did Paul mean when he said having children who believe? Now you say, well, sounds pretty simple. The, the, the pastor's kids got to be Christians. They got to be believers. Well, the word pista there in the Greek, the word for believe, come from the word pistuo, is translated in other places as simply faithful. Like 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, again, in the same context of the pastoral epistles, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it's difficult here to determine whether or not Paul was saying that an elder's kids have to be saved or merely faithful. And I think the next phrase, while it could support either interpretation, seems to better describe a faithful child than a believing child when it says not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That word dissipation um, is, is, would be the word you could translate as wild living, um, kind of a wild child, if you will. Um, Luke 15 uh, 13, we have the story of the prodigal son. And it says, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living. That's the idea here, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And uh, again, that idea of rebellion is that he's not able to be ruled. He's insubordinate. He's, he's unsubmissive. And I think the, the point here is that, that, a, that an elder's children or a pastor's children shouldn't have the reputation of being wild and out of control. The way they live their lives should not bring public shame on their father or his ministry. Kelly and I used to joke with one another when we were uh, uh, at Grace Community Church and our kids were little, toddlers, and uh, of course... A pastor and his wife were always engaged in conversation after church, and so who's there to watch the kids, right? So the kids tend to be running all over the place and running between the link, crawling underneath the pews, and, and I would always say to Kel, hey, let's get our kids out of here before they disqualify us. <laughs> Tongue in cheek, right? Well, that's a lot easier said when they're toddlers, right? But when they get to be teenagers, that's a lot more serious situation. And I would say this, I think this qualification isn't limited to while those children are living under their father's roof. I think this could be a lifetime kind of thing where if there's some common knowledge about a particular elder son um, or daughter that somehow brings shame and dishonor upon their ministry, this could perhaps apply. Again, I think the intent here is that an elder's children must be obedient respectful and well-behaved. 
which generally provides evidence that they've come to know Jesus Christ as their portion of the Lord and Savior, or at least they've not rejected the gospel. But having said that, we need to remember just because a child is faithfully taught the gospel and raised according to biblical principles, that's no guarantee they're going to get saved. And we need to always remember God's sovereignty in parenting, that sometimes kids who grow up in godly homes reject Christ and go astray from the truth, and sometimes kids who grow up in ungodly homes turn out to be devoted followers of Christ. Go figure. And so the goal of parenting, and and hold on for this, put your seatbelt on, because this may shock you when you hear it, but the goal of parenting is not the salvation of our children. Some of you have always had that mindset. My goal is to get these kids saved. And if, I don't, if my kids aren't saved, then I'm going to look like a, you know, a, a bad parent. And I have to live with that shame and embarrassment of coming to church and my kids not walking with the Lord. And well, guess what? That's never your goal because that's impossible for you to accomplish. It's an impossible goal for you to accomplish. Only God can change our kids' hearts, right? So the goal of parenting is to be parents who are pleasing to the Lord and to trust God to save our kids in his way and in his time or not at all. And that's a hard to come to uh, conclusion for parents. But I say that because here at Lakeside, there are elders whose kids are not saved or, have not, who, or who have walked away from the Lord. And where we stand on this issue as elders here at Lakeside, that if an elder's kid rejects Christ or rebels against the Lord, that elder should examine his life, his own life, with the help of his fellow elders to see if he's exasperated that child perhaps or, or contributed in any way by being inconsistent or hypocritical to that young person's rebellion against Christ. I'll never forget a very um, sobering conversation I had with our oldest son one day at Five Guys. <laughs> when I looked across the table between bites and I said, buddy, please tell me, is there anything that I have said or done or not said and done that contributed to where you're at right now spiritually? And he stopped and looked at me and said, dad, it's not you. <laughs> it's me. And in other words, admitting that he knew that he was not where he needed to be. And he was under conviction about that. And while it still made my heart sad, it was a sense of relief, right, that I didn't have a kid blaming me for some kind of hypocrisy that had driven him away from the beauty uh, and the joy of following Christ. And so I think that if a man is not guilty of any obvious parental sin patterns, and he can have that verified by the other people that know him the best and have watched him raise his children uh, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then, then, then they should continue to serve uh, as an elder and pray for uh, the repentance of their children. And perhaps it would be appropriate at some, on, in some occasions, in some circumstances, for them to step down for a season um, from serving. Why? To focus on shepherding that child. And to help them through that rough patch uh, in their life. I would just say this. The the many ups and downs that we've experienced uh, in raising our kids has made us much more empathetic towards parents who have wayward kids and 
I think has made us far more effective in counseling them through the challenges of child rearing. Um, and so while I wouldn't uh, wish it on anybody, uh, it, is a, it is truly a, an experience where the Lord is at work in your heart as a parent, just as much, if not more, than what he's trying to accomplish or desiring to accomplish in your kid's life. And I was able to affirm with my son at that, in that season of his life, I said, hey, buddy, just so you know, uh, you're not the only one on the hot seat here. I said, um, God is just as much in work in my life as he is in your life. And he's exposing lots of idols in my own heart that I had as parents, as a parent, like trying to get some kind of glory or, or um, affirmation that, that I'm a good dad, you know, because I have good kids. And we equate that, sadly, in the life of the church today, right? Good kids or good parents produce good kids. Does, does it always, is that A, you know, one plus one equals two, does it always work like that in parenting? No. And so sometimes I personally had to confess that I had an idol in my heart that I wanted to, I wanted to view myself as a good parent. And I wanted other people to view me as a good parent. And what does a good parent look like? Well, they have good kids who are, walk, who are saved, walking with the Lord, serving them in the church, Right? And I realized that, you know, God was reminding me, hey, Ken, listen, um, uh, I didn't create your kids for your glory. I created them for my glory. And, uh, and also in the goodness of God, uh, there was a, a, a man who sat in our church for years. He's now with the Lord. And he would sit right over here and I would see him most every Sunday morning as I was preaching. And it was just a, a, a God-given gift to see him sitting there because I knew his story, I knew his testimony, that he had raised three sons um, and, and uh, while he was an unbeliever, their entire time they were growing up, uh, unbeliever, um, marriage fell apart, divorced his wife, was um, a, you know, a, a drinker, um, struggled with alcohol, uh, his kids were, were the, the town hellions. And, uh, and yet, in the mercy of God, God saved two of those young men, and they ended up going, we, get, we had a chance to disciple, and they ended up going to the Master's Seminary, they're both in ministry today. And, and I'm sitting here, while I'm up here preaching, you know, you can multitask as a preacher, right? You can preach a message, be think processing things in your mind as you're preaching, and I was multitasking going, go figure, go figure. How does that happen? How does a, a kid that grows up in a godly home where, you know, they they're, have the, all the privileges in the, in the world to, to, to know God's word and to know Christ and they walk away from the Lord and then you got kids growing up where they never even heard the Bible and they get radically saved and they're now serving the Lord full time. And it was just a reminder of the sovereignty of God in parenting. And so, again, that's part of my experience trying to uh, weave together the, the principles here of God's word and, and your own personal experience. And again, we can have more conversations about that if you'd like. But I think generally speaking, I think this is very plain. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. In other words, um, that he is a father and a husband who's pleasing to the Lord no matter how his kids turn out, right, um, is, is the point. And then notice number 14, we're almost done here, not a new convert, not a new convert. So an elder must not be a 
new believer or what we call a baby Christian. They must be a mature believer. By the way, this word here, um, new convert, uh, is a horticultural term meaning newly planted. And so you think about when you plant a new tree in your yard, for example, you usually put a stake alongside it, a real strong stake, and you tie the tree to it, which causes it to grow straight um, until it's firmly rooted in the ground. It's a great analogy of discipleship, right? You get, get a brand new baby Christian, you get, up a, get a mature believer right up next to them, and they grow together um, in their newfound faith. So, so a new believer, for example... Um, hasn't had the time to develop the maturity and the wisdom required to deal with the issues that elders face. Furthermore, an elder must be more spiritually mature than the people they're called to shepherd and lead. I think being an elder, being a pastor calls for someone who has, has the experience in the things of God and the truths of his word. They've been seasoned by life's triumphs and failures and, and joys and, and heart, heartbreaks. And again, I think this is more than just chronological. This is more spiritual. I guess this is more spiritual than chronological. In other words, the office of elder is not exclusive to older men. Like, you, well, he doesn't have gray hair, so he, he probably is not qualified to be an elder. That, that, that it, it's always best case scenario when you get the old wise guys, right? Um, but uh, that doesn't preclude a, a young man who's matured in Christ, like Timothy, for example, who is considered a, a young man in his early 40s. Uh, that was young to be an elder back then, and that's why Paul told Timothy in, in chapter 4, verse 12, to let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So if you've got a young man who's a model believer, a model Christian, right, then he potentially is qualified uh, to be a, a pastor or elder. But notice the reason he gives here, and not a new convert, so that, verse 6, he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So Paul's concern here is if you elevate an immature man prematurely alongside other mature godly men, it may cause him to get puffed up and conceited. He's going to get a big head. And he'll be tempted to think more highly of himself than he ought. He'll have an exaggerated sense of his own self-importance. And so a church needs to be careful not to give a new believer too much responsibility too soon. We need to guard young believers is, is really what the idea is. We need to guard young believers from falling into the same trap that Satan did, which was the sin of pride. And the punishment for pride is what? Humiliation. Satan was cast out of heaven. And what is Proverbs 16, 18? If my mom said it once, she said it a thousand times to me when I was a little kid. Pride goeth before a fall. Pride goeth before a fall. So, new converts aren't qualified to be pastors or elders. And then lastly, number 15, is an elder must have a good reputation outside the church. A good reputation outside the church. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So, an elder must not only be well-respected inside the church, but also outside the church. In other words, he has to have a good reputation in the local community. 
For example, does he pay his bills on time? What does he do when the neighbor kid kicks the ball through his living room window? Or in Kyle's case, what does he do when he kicks the ball through the neighbor's window? The soccer player that Kyle is. He walked right over there and confessed it was me. Even though he was tempted to take his ball and run. Um, how, does, how does he treat the, the checker at the grocery store? Or the waitress at the local restaurant? What do people at work think of him? How about this? What is he like in the stands or on the sidelines at his kid's sporting event? How many times have you been disillusioned, really, by seeing who you consider to be a very godly man out on the basketball court who turned into some Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde guy when he plays sports? And I saw that too many times growing up. Guys that I idolized, spiritually speaking, would get out on the basketball court and they were the ones who would argue with the refs more than anybody else. And it really made me lose respect for those guys. There was this inconsistency. There was a disconnect uh, in their life. I think what we need to realize is that the world forms their opinion of the church largely by the character and the conduct of its leaders, And whether we want to admit it or not, unbelievers are often a shrewd judge of our character and they're quick to point out hypocrisy and inconsistency in the church. And they're right. It's not an excuse not to come to church. Them coming to church would just add one more hypocrite to the bunch, but the point is that an elder must take special care to maintain his reputation as a man of integrity. Like Paul said in Philippians 2.15, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And so if a pastor or elder does not have a good reputation with those outside the church, he will become a, a liability to that church rather than an asset to that church. Because an elder with a bad reputation can destroy the testimony of the entire church. And I think that is, the, that is one of the reasons why Satan works so hard to destroy the reputation of godly leaders. Notice what he says. So he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So the picture here is that the, the, the devil is, is kind of the hunter of souls here. And he's setting his snares, trying to trip up and trap leaders in any way possible. And when an elder stumbles in sin, it devastates the entire congregation and the entire Christian community. And that's why I think Satan aims his hottest and and, and sharpest, uh, deadliest darts at the spiritual leaders because he knows that if he can get them to fall, he can get the entire ministry to fall. And if you kind of keep up with what's going on in the broader evangelical world, we've seen this happen in the last few years, time and time again. Very well-known, highly esteemed pastors and ministry leaders have disqualified themselves and it's destroyed their entire ministry. Like their entire ministry went away. Whether it was their church or their parachurch organization, It's no longer in existence. So the higher up a man rises in leadership, 
the farther the fall, the wider the impact, and the greater reproach on Christ and the church. This is a good reminder for us to pray for our leaders, amen? Because every one of our pastors and elders here at this church has a big old bullseye on their back. And Satan is gunning for them. Because if he can take us out, he can take you out. Um, and any other ministry leader that you love to listen to, I'm sure you've got your favorite preacher out there. It's not me, it's that guy on the radio or that guy in his podcast. And that's okay, I'm good with that. As long as you're getting the word preached to you, I'm, I'm happy. But pray for that guy, whoever that guy is. Uh, or maybe it's a woman's leader that you, you ladies love to listen to this particular gal teacher. Man, if she's been exalted to a position um, of, of above other people like that and, or, or anybody like that, Satan is going after them. That's a, that's a big bang for his buck, right? To take out those high-profile people. So pray for those people that they would continue to stay faithful to the word. So, these are the standards that God has set for any man who desires to exercise leadership in the local church. You say, why are the standards so high? Because the pastors and elders set the standard for the rest of the church. Someone said it this way, biblical history demonstrates that people will seldom rise above the spiritual level of their leadership. And I think that's why scripture sets the bar so high for those who serve as spiritual leaders in the church. What did Paul say often to the churches he wrote to? 1 Corinthians 4, 16, uh, 11, verse one, follow me as I, what? Follow Christ. Philippians three seventeen. This was Paul's heart as a leader. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Philippians 4, verse 9, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And then again, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, the elders not to lord it over those allotted to their charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. So this all makes sense when you realize that the role of a pastor or elder isn't just to teach the flock how to live a godly life by their words, but to show them how to live a godly life by their example. This whole thing right here, studying God's word, preaching God's word, this is, this is not an easy task, but it's way easier than what happens when I'm outside this pulpit. That's where the hard work, the real work begins of, of modeling what has been proclaimed from God's word from this pulpit. The model, the elders are to model what the rest of the church is to be. Now hopefully you see where this is going. Some of you may have been sitting here the last couple weeks going, well, when's this, I hope this series goes, gets over quick because this is totally irrelevant to me. Because I'm not an elder, have no aspiration to be an elder. So, okay, I got it, let's move on. This is irrelevant. You need to understand that every one of these qualities that is mentioned here in these seven verses is commanded of every believer somewhere else in the New Testament. 
And so while these qualities directly apply to elders, they indirectly apply to all of us. And so whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're whether you aspire to, to be an elder or not, you should strive to become the kind of person that Paul described here in 1 Timothy. And the issue is the elders are simply supposed to be setting the example, setting the pace, leading the charge, if you will, in becoming people like this. And again, let me just say it again in a different way. This is not about perfection. This is about direction. Okay? Because I'll be the first to say I've not perfected any of these. But hopefully I'm moving in the, in the right direction in all of these areas. And that's what we're looking for, right? Is men who are moving in this direction, who are modeling these things um, to the rest of us. So I close with this question. How does your life, not my life, you're, you might be saying, okay, how does Ken's life and these elder candidates, how do they, the other elders, how do they line up? Are they really match up this? No, how, how does your life match up with this list? Do you look anything like this person that Paul described here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7? Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing us a very clear checklist for not only what leaders should look like in the church, but what every Christian should look like eventually as we grow in Christ, that we technically should all be qualified to serve um, you in whatever capacity you call us to serve you. And so, Lord, would you just grant us grace? We know that none of us can be these things apart from your grace. And so, would you accomplish these things in my life and the life of the other men who you've called to lead this church, and that we'd always just walk with humility and transparency and uh, just realness uh, with those that you've called us to shepherd, and uh, Lord, that you would continue to give this body of believers wisdom and discernment as they pick the leaders and are part of that process of, 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 of appointing new elders and new deacons to the leadership team of this church, that they would take that responsibility very seriously and realize that they have a significant role to play. And so, Lord, would you continue to give us wisdom and direction as we move through this process together for your glory. We want to pray for the students as they wrap up their final session this morning, that your spirit would work powerfully in the hearts of those young people, save those who need to be saved, sanctify those who need to be sanctified, give this, the staff strength and stamina. I'm sure they're wiped out by now, but you just, uh, just continue to provide for them as they come home, grant them a safe journey home, we pray and just a great reunion with our families when they get home. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right.